I have figured out, I have figured out that control in life is just an illusion. Like the fog. I would like to think that I am in the driver's seat about stuff in my life, my job, my finances, my relationships, and to some degree, to a small degree, I am, but by and large, life is outside of my control. If you have kids, you learn this the easy way or the hard way. They come out, they're babies, and life revolves around them. Wah! Honey, do you, are you hungry? Wah! Do you need to be changed? Okay, the cry you know, just cements them as the, kind of the center of the universe for a while. And then, then they get to this beautiful window, the window of perfect obedience and control. Daddy told you to go put that over there? Yes, Daddy. And then somewhere shortly thereafter that window, they learn the word no. Right? Okay? And it's a beautiful little window, but it, it can give you the illusion that you have control. It can if you, if you stay in that window too long. But otherwise, kids just show you that, that control really is just a mirage. Jenny had a friend uh, whose father was an outstanding doctor. Okay? And, and this, this guy's father wanted him to follow in his footsteps uh, drilled him, drilled him, pressured him, pressured him. You know, you got to get, get good grades in math. You got to do really well in science and biology. And, you know, uh, pushed and pushed and did the whole drills and everything. And, and uh, he did really well. Got into a really great school. Then it was got to go to med school, got to go to med school, got to go to med school. Went in, got into med school, completed med school. And right before his residency, Jenny's friend said to his father, guess what? Dad... I want to be an opera singer <laughs> right before residency. And right in that moment, Dr. Fields learned that control whew, is a mirage. It's an illusion, okay, that eluded him. Um, what do you do if you've been working a job for 10 years and you've done really well and you've played all the politics and you've showed up early and stayed late and everybody loves you and your boss says you're indispensable? What do you do? You go, and, and, and you go out and you buy a new car and because it's 0% financing, you take the loan and then two days later, the boss calls you into his office or her office and they say to you, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. It's nothing personal. In fact, they're closing down the whole operation. All of us are going to be employed in six months. Yours is just the first position. Oh! And all of your little dial throwing got you nowhere. That is so unfair. What do you... Uh, for those of you that are younger, okay, I want to talk to you for a minute. Let's say that there's this person and you so want to be in their world and you, you send a Facebook friend request and they accept it and you think, I'm in. And when they post comments, you like every one of their posts, hoping that will it ingratiate you to them, okay? And you will occasionally post something on their wall or whatnot that tells them how great they are. And when you see them in person, they smile, and they're kind to you, and they're nice. Only two months later, you find out that they have been trash-talking you to all of your mutual friends, telling them that you're a moron, et cetera, et cetera. And you confront them, and, then, and you say, but I thought we were friends. And they say to you, dude, you're not my friend. Oh, what about all the dial-throwing? What about the liking of your status? Control, it's Okay, if you're tempted to believe this morning that you're in the driver's seat about the stuff in your life, all it takes is one of those moments for you to go, oh, 
and, and, and you're faced with the reality that control is really just an illusion, which is why I want to talk to you today about prayer, of all things. Prayer, we have this tendency, we think of prayer as something that we do. I am praying, I am talking to God, or I am listening to God, I am making a petition unto God, Father God. I should say at least Father God 17 times in the rest of the sermon, Father God, okay? So, and, and we, we think of it as this something we do, but I want to suggest to you to something that, that today that prayer is not just something you do. Prayer is actually a mindset. It's actually an, a way to orient yourself in life by having a posture of prayer. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, a posture of prayer is really a posture of dependence. It's a posture that acknowledges... <laughs> I'm not really in control, even when I think I am. I need help. I need your help, God. I need you, God. That's really the posture. And that posture pays off, believe it or not. And I want to walk into that. Um, pastors of all people should know this. We should know this. But the church in America is blighted by some very big, huge pastor traps that we pastors have fallen into. In the 90s, we all bought the John Maxwell books, and we said, you know what, if we just practice good leadership, if we do good leadership, the throngs will come to us. Why? Because we will lead like Moses or Abraham Lincoln. And, they, or, and then the church growth techniques, if you just wear really cool clothing and have a mohawk or the tattoo in the right place that says, you're sort of cool, but you're dangerous too. People will flock to hear you preach, right? And so all of a sudden, pastors in the 2000s got tattoos everywhere. Guess what? I don't have any. Nowhere. <laughs> I'm not cool, man. Okay? And, and we bought into this trap, and we thought if we just tattooed our body or had a really cool band, we would get the results. We would control the outcome. It's a myth. You can't really control that stuff, okay? So today, in order to talk about this posture of prayer, I want to look into the least likely places of the Bible, and I want to peer into the life of Samson. You ever heard of Samson? How many of you have heard of Samson? Samson is known for what? His strength. He is the he-man of the universe, okay? So let Samson comes onto the scene in the book of Judges, and we're going to be in Judges 16 today if you brought a Bible and you want to get there, okay? So let me set the stage. Judges 16 is all about, uh, really, it's like summer television. The same, you've seen it before, okay? What's happening in the book of Judges is that the Israelites are forgetting to uh, honor God, and, and they're choosing to do their own thing, and they're ignoring what God wants them to do, God's rules, laws, whatever you want to call them. And then they get into trouble, and the Philistines or some other neighboring country comes in and burns their villages down, rapes their women, does horrible stuff, and then they cry out to God, and they get into a prayer posture, and they're like, God, oh God, please help us, deliver us. God from heaven or wherever decides, okay, fine, and sends a deliverer, a person who's going to lead them into some miraculous thing, and they get delivered. And then sometime, and, and, and in that moment, they're like, God is awesome, God is great, God, we're going to do 
whatever you want. You are God. This is great. This is cool. Oh, wow, look at that. And then they, got dis- they get distracted and they start doing their own stuff again and they start ignoring God's ways and then they get oppressed in some other country. It just cycles through. It's, it goes over and over again, okay? So Samson is one of these deliverers in this long chain of repeated historical events. So, uh, and I'm going to actually, we're going to just read through this chunk because I want the scripture to actually speak to you today, okay? So Judges 16, this is what it says. One day, Samson went to the Philistine town of Gaza and spent the night with a prostitute. Word soon spread that Samson was there, so the men of Gaza gathered together and waited all night at the town gates. They kept quiet during the night, saying to themselves, when the light of morning comes, we'll kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the town gate, including the two posts, lifted them up, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and carried them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. Picking up a gate like that is huge. I mean, these ancient city gates were big and heavy. This is a miraculous thing for him to do this. But let me ask a sub-question. Should he have been there seeing a prostitute? Let me ask this question again. You, you seem a little maybe hesitant in your response. <laughs> Just want to clarify. Should he have been seen a prostitute? No. Oh, whew, okay. All right. No. In fact, he was a Nazarite. He took a vow. I'm not going to touch wine. I'm not going to, you know, be with prostitutes. I'm going to be holy unto the Lord. I'm never going to cut my hair. On my honor, so help me God. Okay, the vow they all took. And, and, and so this greatly frustrates the Philistines because he's coming in and raiding their towns and wreaking havoc, this Samson guy. So guess what they do? They enlist the help of Delilah. Verse four, sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. In the Hebrew, it's 1,100 shekels, each of them. So that's, there's five of them making this request. That's 5,500 shekels. In today's dollars, that's six, or no, $2.6 billion. That's an obscene amount of money. It's basically all the money in the world that we have. Here, if you can help us get Samson, it's all yours, honey. And so now she sees dollar signs through the eyes of, in her head, everywhere, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Well, Samson sees her and is smitten by her, and they enter into a relationship. But let's push the pause button for a moment. They didn't know what made Samson so strong. Don't you find that curious? I grew up in, in church and in Sunday school, and any time I saw a picture of Samson, you know what I saw? He-Man. Big, strapping, muscular guy. If that were the case, wouldn't you go, duh, the guy's an ox. Clearly, he's going to rip the doors off the city gates. You know, don't let him near anything. You know what I think? You're looking at a Samson body right here, buddy. <laughs> Would you like to see the gun show? (laughs) Okay. I'm thinking that Samson is really a guy like me. 
which is why the Philistines are pulling out their hair going, how is this guy doing all of that? It makes no sense. This defies logic. It defies the way the world is supposed to work. He's not muscular. That's what I'm thinking. All right? Well, Delilah tries to get him to tell him her secret. All right? And, and that's verses... Uh, Six and following, please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. Samson replied, well, if I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not been dried, I would become as weak as anyone else. Well, of course, she does that. She gets the bowstrings and ties them up and invites the Philistines to hide. And then she does the whole reveal at the end in verse 9. Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. (gasps) I'm shocked. But then Samson snapped the bowstrings as a piece of string snaps when it's burned by fire. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. So she does this again, verse 10. Afterward, Delilah said to him, now you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Please tell me how I can tie you up securely. Samson replied, well, if I were tied up with brand new ropes that have never been used, I'd become as weak as anyone else. So Delilah, verse 12, took new ropes and tied him up with them. The men were hiding in the inner room as before, and Delilah cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But again, Samson snapped the ropes from his arms as if they were a thread. And then Delilah said, verse 13, Honey, no, she didn't say that. She said, You've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now tell me how you can be tied up securely. Samson replied, If you were to weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on your loom and tighten it with the loom shuttle, I'd become as weak as anyone else. He's getting closer to the truth. So while he slept, Delilah wove seven braids of his hair into the fabric and she tightened it with the loom shuttle. And again, she cried out in the middle of the night, Samson, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson woke up, pulled back the loom shuttle and yanked his hair away from the loom and the fabric. That I would have paid money to see. I mean, seriously, uh, you know, it's got to hurt, but apparently his hair was strong, not just him, okay? Then Delilah pouted. Notice the text changes. She pouted. She's now a pouting woman. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you haven't even told me what makes you so strong. And she tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. Some preachers have preached sermons basically on marriage there and said, here's how to get what you want in marriage, right? Okay. (laughs) Finally, verse 17, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair, my hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. Delilah realized he had finally told her the truth. So she sent for the Philistine rulers, come back one more time, for he has finally told me his secret. So the Philistine rulers returned with the money in their hands. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap. And then she called in a man to shave off the seven locks of his hair. And in this way, she began to bring him down and his strength left him. And then she cried out, Samson, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. And then he woke up and thought, I will do as I did before and shake myself free. And then what I think is the most frightening verse in all of the Bible. He didn't realize the Lord had left him. Think about that for a minute. He's 
No problem. He-man! He doesn't even know. He's become so desensitized to the Holy Spirit because his interfacing with God has been on a, hey, I really need you to come through with me now. Hey, God, hey, God, hey, God. Okay, fine, it's great. I've got my strength, no problem. I'm on my own. I'll call you when I need you. Please don't call me. I'll call you. Thank you, Yahweh, creator of the universe. I'll talk to you later. See ya. And it leads him to a point in his life and in his relationship where he's so desensitized, he doesn't even know the Holy Spirit has left him. I find that the most scary thing in all of Scripture. And so the Philistines, verse 21, captured him and gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains. Remember, this is the same city that he tore the gates off of. This is... This is irony, beautiful irony in the eyes of the Philistines. They forced him to grind grain in prison, but before long his hair began to grow back. And we get the rest of the story in verses 23 and following. I'll just walk you through it. The Philistine rulers held a great festival offering sacrifices and praising their god Dagon. They said, our God's giving us victory over Samson. And when the people saw it, they praised their god saying, our God has delivered our enemy to us. Half drunk, verse 25, the people demanded, bring out Samson so he can amuse us. And so he was brought from prison to amuse them, and they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. And then Samson basically cries out to God and says, they took my eyes. Help me get them back, Lord. Give me strength one more time, and I'll kill us all. And sure enough, the the Lord gives him strength despite his wicked heart, and he pushes the pillar and the whole thing collapses, and the Bible tells us that he killed more people in death than he did in life. And there ends the story of Samson the Great. Samson thought he could pull God out on a need-only basis. And I would suggest to you and me that that's not a really effective way to interface with God. I mean... Eventually, God will tire of anyone trying to use him as a cosmic vending machine. Um, And if it's not in this life, it will be the next. We will eventually have to face him for who he is, creator, master, Lord. Real power, I believe, only comes from our connection with the Holy Spirit by allowing the Spirit to work in our lives. And, and so here's where this hits the road, okay? And, and so in light of the life of Samson, in light of the fact that prayer is a mindset and not just something that you and I do, uh, let me pose a couple of scenarios. Scenario number one, let's say that for you, things are going really great right now. All your ducks are in a row. You've got ample money in the bank account. Your relationships are relatively good. I would suggest to you that you actually need God. Right this very moment, even though all your ducks are in a row, even though you've got a savings account with 10 grand in it, I would suggest to you that you really need God. Dependence, an attitude of dependence is what's going to unlock the working of the Holy Spirit because you never know when your boss is going to call you in. You never know when, you know, because again, is control real? No, it's an illusion. You need God. And so uh, if you've never done this, if if maybe you grew up Catholic and you're used to kneeling or whatnot in church, I would encourage you that there actually are some postures, physical postures that can help you. A lot of times when I'm having conversations with God, when I talk to God, I don't close my eyes. I know most people in America do, but I don't because that's just me. 
Okay, so if you've ever thought, if I'm talking to God, I must have my eyes closed, you can throw that out the window. But when I'm talking to him, you know what? My hands are often like this, palms up. It's a physical posture that is communicating several things. I need you. I give this to you. I hope that you give something to me. (laughs) You know, it's a posture of need. It's a posture of dependence. Palms up. Um, if, you, if you live in my neighborhood and you see me, well, I tend to do, wait until nightfall to do this because I'm, you know, never know, I don't want people seeing me talking and walking like this because then they'll call the cops. But, you know, so if you ever see me walk in the neighborhood like this, you know, oh, Max is talking to God. Yep, that's what this means typically, okay? Palms up. Try it sometime. See if the physical posture actually helps the whole brain stuff kick in of, oh, yeah, I need you, okay? It's just... Something, okay, so if things are going well, I want to suggest that you still need God. Now, if you're here today and you're like, my life is not going well. I really need the mortgage payment at the end of the month. Or my relationships are toast. They're crispy. Max, why do you think I'm in church today? I need God. Hello. Bing, bing, bing. I've got good news. The attitude of humility and dependence is what unlocks the working of the Holy Spirit. It's what unlocks God's provision. It's what unlocks God's grace. Remember the story that, uh, remember the commentary that Jesus made about the publican uh, and, and, and the uh, sinner who are praying in the temple? There's the one guy who's got his act all together and he looks at the sinner and he says, Oh Lord God, thank you. Thank you for all that you have given me. Thank you that I am not like him. Lord, he needs help. He needs a therapist. He probably couldn't even afford the bill. Look at those clothes. Thank you, Lord. You are so good. Amen. And then there's the sinner's prayer. This is in Luke, right? Luke 16. And what does the sinner do? (laughs) I got nothing. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And Jesus, off to the side, sees the two, knows their hearts, and he says, what? That one there. That one that horse is a winner. I'm putting my money on that guy. Why? Palms up, baby. He knows he's utterly dependent on God. Um, Here's where this plays out in terms of you and I as individuals. When you get into a pinch, you lose your job, something happens. I understand that you got connections and that you're tempted to want to start leveraging and throwing dials. Stop first and go to God first. I'm not telling you to not throw your dials or when you lose your job, not put an application on Monster or or activate your network. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying go to God first. Make God your first and consistent response to life in an attitude of dependence. Uh, Jenny and I faced a situation a week ago where there were some people that were just absolutely mean to her. And I was so in my flesh, I wanted to not only not forgive last week's message, but I wanted to go over them to their boss and go, you need to go take these people and kill them now in my presence. Okay? That's what I want to do. I prayed about it instead. I've noticed that the relationship's gotten better and all I've done is prayed. Hmm. Coincidence? Maybe. Maybe not. All right? Um, Here's where this plays out for us as a community of faith. As a community of faith, I want us to remember that it's the prayer work that really unlocks the big God work. You know, we can have the, te- the, the techniques. Every member of the pastoral staff could go get a tattoo. 
really, it's not going to do what prayer is going to do. D.L. Moody, who had a church in the 1800s, would have services where he would have 1,000, 2,000 people, which at the time was just unheard of, okay? In the 1800s, that was just scary big, unconceivable. Um, And so he would have these services, but in his sanctuary in downtown Chicago, he had the fellowship hall, which was the basement, that's the way they all did it back then, um, underneath. During the service, on any given Sunday, there were at least 200 people in that basement doing what? Praying the whole service. He later wrote that my skills as an orator, the amazing uh, musician that I had to lead worship who was nationally known, none of that mattered. The reason that God did anything, the reason that anybody gave their life to him, all of the fruit of the ministry of what happened in that tabernacle is a result of what was going on in the basement. It was God. Palms up. I needed him. I'm utterly dependent on him. My gifts, my talents, my skills, I will give to him, but he's what breathes life into anything. So that's, you know, as we wade into summer training, I just wanted to remind you and remind me that an attitude of, of dependence is really the best way to go because that's what unlocks the amazing things of